Welcome to Unfiltered. Here's tonight's headline. Overfed or fed up, according to President Trump. Today, we're all eating up a news report about his growing displeasure with Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin. I am extremely happy and proud of the job being done by U.S. Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin. The fake news likes to write stories to the contrary, quoting phony sources or jealous people. But they aren't true. They never like to ask me for a quote because it would kill their story. Hmm. That's not what people inside the administration are saying. Trump's reportedly blaming Mnuchin for the appointment of a Fed chairman who's been raising interest rates and for the turbulent stock market and for not being more supportive of his trade war threats. He's reportedly even wondered aloud with advisors if Trump should have appointed someone else. For more on this, let me bring in CNN White House correspondent Sarah Westwood. What's the latest? Well, SC, uh, the president's frustration with Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin is just the latest in a slew of people that the president has reportedly grown dissatisfied with. CNN has reported that President Trump begun to lose faith in his Homeland Security Secretary, Kirsten Nielsen. He's been openly wondering about who he'll replace her with, that again, he's turned back to wondering whether Chief of Staff John Kelly is still a good fit to lead the West Wing. The president's frustration with the Federal Reserve and its decision to raise interest rates several times during his presidency, that's not new, dating back to October. The president was complaining that that decision from Fed Chair Jerome Powell was crazy, that the Fed was getting out out of control. But what is new is the president projecting that frustration on to Mnuchin, complaining, uh, complaining to his confidants that it's Mnuchin's fault that Powell's at the Fed because he selected Powell on Mnuchin's recommendation. And President Trump has touted the stock market repeatedly as evidence that his economic agenda is working. So he's been particularly sensitive to the recent volatility in the market because he sees it as so closely tied to his economic agenda. And again, the president is looking for someone to blame for that volatility, turning that blame on Secretary Mnuchin. Sarah, thanks so much for that reporting. Okay, here's tonight's other headline. Thanksgiving or Festivus? While you were stuffing yourselves full of turkey, watching football with friends and trying to avoid talking politics with your family on Thanksgiving, President Trump was celebrating another kind of holiday tradition, the airing of grievances. In a call that is traditionally meant to give thanks and support to our men and women in uniform serving overseas, Trump instead battered them with a wild and wandering list of complaints, most of them about how unfairly he's been treated. On a call with a U.S. general in Afghanistan where there's an actual war going on, he complained about the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals for failing to rule in his favor against asylum seekers. He complained to a naval commander in Bahrain about unfair trade deals. He complained to a U.S. naval commander on the USS Ronald Reagan about electromagnetic catapult technology on Navy ships. And then he boasted to an Air Force general about his authorization of the use of deadly force at our southern border. Now, it's hard enough to imagine this bizarre, self-aggrandizing display being performed with our armed servicemen and women as the unwitting props in Trump's airing of personal grievances. But now imagine it all happening from the comfy confines of the family resort at Mar-a-Lago, where the president got some R&R, played some golf, and was regaled by music from the Phantom of the Opera in his lavish ballroom. 
While a world away, fathers and mothers are separated from their families for months at a time, risking their lives every day just to keep us safe. Well, after the airing of grievances, though, and comes the feats of strength. In a subsequent Q&A with reporters, Trump sounded off on a host of other topics. He defended his daughter Ivanka's use of private email for government business, something a bipartisan group of lawmakers has objected to and pledged to investigate. He defended his decision to believe Saudi Arabia's explanation for the killing of journalist Jamal Khashoggi, publicly questioning his own intelligence community's assessment that Prince Mohammed bin Salman was directly involved. After months of complaining that his political enemies should be prosecuted by the DOJ, Republicans issued subpoenas for James Comey and Loretta Lynch. And after ordering a comprehensive report on the effects of climate change, the administration quietly dumped it on Black Friday when it turned out it contradicted just about everything the president has said and tweeted about the topic. Here's the deal. Trump is not a king, but he sure acts like one. The military, the Justice Department, Congress, his intelligence community, all just there at his disposal to use or ignore for his own benefit. But that's not how this works. That's not how any of this works. So with a change in the balance of power coming, will anyone tell him that? For more on this, let me bring in chief political correspondent for Esquire, CNN political analyst Ryan Lizza and CNN political commentator Amanda Carpenter. Thank you both for spending at least part of your Thanksgiving weekend here in New York with me. I do appreciate it. Uh, Amanda, Trump is clearly under the impression that the Justice Department is sort of his own personal attorney, uh, that the military are his toy soldiers, that uh, Congress are his gatekeepers, his stooges, Fox News is his his media. Um, He's had it pretty good for a while. Is that about to change, though, with uh, the new Democratic House? Um, Yes, if they want to be aggressive. But I think there is one thing that is guaranteed that petrifies him and maybe explains the anger that he has at Treasury Secretary Mnuchin. Mm. And that's the fact that the Democrats are going to get his tax returns. There is an old 1934 uh, anti-corruption teapot dome era law that allows the Ways and Means chairman or other people jurisdiction over taxes to Mm. simply request a president's tax returns and view them privately. Mm-hmm. Um, it does get dicey because they can't disclose it without a vote, but they can use the information they glean to talk to other lawmakers, perhaps about other investigations mm. that are ongoing. <laughs> and so um, what we saw with the Justice Department with the sacking of Jeff Sessions was that Jeff Sessions is out so Trump could get a much more political player in that position. Mm-hmm. I think he's looking at getting rid of people like John Kelly, Chris Nielsen, Mnuchin potentially to get political players in those positions who will protect him. Right. Absolutely. Who will, who yep. will continue to do his bidding. Um, thank you for that terrific President Harding. <laughs> I appreciate that. Let's all go relive those days. We might have to. <laughs> Although they did get Nixon's tax returns. That, we have been That's there with true. Watergate too. Harding so we can relive look, a lot of history. Harding may look okay at the end of this term. <laughs> He might turn out all right. Um, So, Ryan, we're going to talk more about Trump's relationship with the military in in a a, a coming block. But um, how bizarre was Trump's call with those military leaders on Thanksgiving? On, like, a Trump scale of 1 to 10, it's in, like, the 8 to 9 range. That's a sliding scale. He is is not, uh, what's the proper term? He's not context sensitive. Mm, In other words, 
he mm -hmm. rails w about whatever is on his mind to whomever is in his vicinity. If yeah. he were sitting right right here, it wouldn't matter that you are are interviewing him uh -huh. on, on TV, right? The kid who's mowing the lawn at the White House or a general in mm. Afghanistan, it's all the same. It's whatever yeah. he is railing, thinking about at that moment yeah. that he's hopped up on, that's what he unloads about. No matter who's but there, it's also so what it just, day it is. Absolutely. Right. So we get all of these examples of him just being completely inappropriate, like mm. he started his administration at the CIA talking about right. the crowd size and right. talking about all these things behind a wall of uh, stars memorializing dead CIA agents. So he just, he doesn't care about the context well, of what I think he it's is. It's constantly inappropriate. None yeah, of he, this kept him from getting elected, Amanda, but no. as we saw with midterms, there might be some consequences. Do you mm -hmm. think now that Republicans are a little bit uh, against the wall looking toward 2020, they coerce him to be a little bit more traditional or mindful of some of these some of these orthodox I think you could look for a few people potentially to exert some pressure on him and that's vulnerable Republican senators going into 2020 like a Susan Collins mm. perhaps who may choose to weigh in on an issue here or there but largely I mean this is Trump's party the people who voice opposition to him have been silenced or they've shown themselves the door like a Jeff Flake and so if you want accountability, you have to look to the Democrats at this point because it is Trump's party and nothing's going to change that going into 2020 when he is the default nominee. Well, he, so next week, just, just, just pivoting forward, he's heading to Argentina um, to meet with G20 leaders, including Xi Jinping of China, Vladimir Putin of Russia. Two of his favorites. Um, yes. Do you think Republicans may be sort of aware of the optics, aware of what just happened with the midterms? Do you anticipate any Republicans saying ahead of that, can you just keep it on the straight and narrow for like two days? Well, I don't think any Republicans, now that the Democrats are in power in the House, are suddenly going to be a break on his behavior or mm -hmm. what he's doing. If mm -hmm. anything, I think now they will have even more of, a, of mm. an excuse to be enablers and yeah. defenders. Yeah. Right? Democrats They're going to mm -hmm. right, and will, mm -hmm. of course there will be Democrats who overreach, who do things that are politically. Uh, bad yeah. for them. The yeah. Republicans will be there to point it out. They will, they're now in more of a traditional role as defenders of, of their, their president. Right. Now they're not in power, so they'll have no shame about that. Mm. And, you know, on foreign policy, every once in a while, you know, you're, you're talking about G20. So there, every, there, are, yeah. there are occasionally the Rubios of the world who sort of pipe up and say, tisk tisk. I don't think you did that exactly, uh, you know, correctly. Or the Corkers, yeah. <laughs> or the Corkers, who's now gone. It's right? gone, right. But that's the, and that's the second part of it. Yeah. All of the people who were his... Uh, critics, yeah. the Republicans, the leaders, they are or either retired, right. defeated, uh, or in the case of John McCain, uh, deceased. Yeah, that's so true. he now has a much more <laughs> Trump-like right. uh, group of Republicans on the Hill. Uh, Amanda, quickly, I want to discuss the Ivanka Trump mm -hmm. email controversy for a minute. Um, you know, uh, current House leadership, leadership is promising to um, investigate that. And we all see the hypocrisy mm -hmm. in her using private email when, um, you know, Trump suggested locking up Hillary Clinton for doing the very same thing. Um, Ivanka wasn't running for president at the time. But my question to you is this. Does anyone care about hypocrisy? I feel like <laughs> yeah. that was baked you need, into the We need a stronger Trump. word. Yeah. And he has turned hypocrisy into, like, a, a, a care of the elites. Mm -hmm. I care Good about hypocrisy. Yeah. I think you probably do, too. But do voters? I think there's a broader question that's bigger that gets you more to the idea of what is Ivanka doing there? 
who cares about her email? I mean, I do. She's not following the rules. When you go to the White House, you are told you have to yeah. conduct official business on email. This is very basic stuff she's not paying attention to. But again, why is she there? Mm. What is Jared Kushner doing? And this gets to international complications with Saudi Arabia. And so, yeah, we can talk about emails, but it would be... You know, it would be a failure not to go down Sip the meeting of, of this. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Ryan, Amanda, thanks so much thanks, for joining Jesse. me. Happy Thanksgiving. Thanks. Uh, next, looking at the huge gap between Trump's words about the U.S. military and his actions, it might surprise you. And later, has Nancy Pelosi stomped out the mutiny within her party and locked up the speakership? The president's Thanksgiving Day diss, wherein he used the holiday of gratitude to complain to U.S. troops overseas about all of his political problems here at home, was just the latest example of Trump's cavalier attitude toward the sacrifice of our armed service members. Remember, in France, he declined to visit a U.S. military cemetery to commemorate the end of World War I. He declined to visit Arlington National Cemetery to honor Veterans Day. He has yet to visit American troops in a combat zone. The president's perspective when it comes to our military has always been fairly unsubtle. While he likes, quote unquote, tough guys and surrounding himself with generals and the idea of a military parade to show off our strength, he has little appreciation for what it actually means to serve. So what does this mean to our troops? Joining me now, State Department spokesman during the Obama administration, CNN military and diplomatic analyst, retired U.S. Navy Rear Admiral John Kirby. Um, Admiral, I think it's important to make a distinction between what a person does and what a person says. And, and that cuts both ways. Um, so stay with me. First, how meaningful is it that the president of the United States pay his respects at, at Arlington or a military cemetery overseas. How important is it that the president of the United States makes these holiday calls and expresses his support and appreciation? It's very important, Essie. Um, it's not just symbolic, although it is symbolic. Um, yeah. It's an expression. He's the commander in chief. He he is he embodies the American people's will with respect to military operations, military sourcing, military funding. He's it, he is the, at the top of the chain of command, and for him to express physically express, tangibly express, not only his personal gratitude, but the gratitude of the American people on his behalf, uh, or on, he's on their behalf, uh, that's really important. That means a lot. And so while it may be ceremonial, uh, it, there's yeah. a gravitas to it uh, that men and women in uniform pay a lot of attention to. So what about uh, visiting combat zones? Um, President Obama had visited combat zone, I think, in Iraq, um, like four months into his presidency, we remember. Um, President Bush spent Thanksgiving uh, in, in a war zone. You just wrote for CNN.com, though, that maybe Trump shouldn't go to combat zones. Why not? I don't think that if he's if he's not willing to keep the politics out of it, if he's going to behave the way he did on Thanksgiving Day, then I think it's better for him just not to go. I think it, it does more damage to the institution, the military mm. institution, than it does a boon from morale. Now, if he's willing to leave 
politics behind when he gets on Air Force One, then I'm all for it. I think he should go. I think it's really important back to that showing support for what the troops are doing, being willing to be there with them physically on the ground and let them yeah. know that you're behind them matters. But it also, there's another part of this, Essie, and that's not just going to, to boost morale and give them a shot in the arm. It's about going to better understand the mission itself, right. to talk to commanders, to talk to them, to listen to them about what they're doing, the challenges they're facing, and what they might need from him and from Washington. That's a real important part of these visits and the, and the president's missing out yeah. on that context by not going yeah that's so important um, so that's that that's an inaction right not going to combat zones and I, I think it's I think it's disappointing you make a good point though about not wanting to politicize it but what matters most to our armed forces I, I ask this because Trump has made our troops and our national defense a cornerstone of his campaign and to that end Trump and Republicans in Congress passed the biggest budget the Pentagon has ever seen, $700 billion, and it was on time for the first time since 2008. How does that weigh against the visits and the phone calls that, as you say, are really important? It, it all matters. I, I think we should be careful not to not to put them into buckets and say, well, the, the budget matters more than the than the tangible yeah. uh, expressions of support. It all matters. And look, when you're uh, at certain levels of the chain of command, the budget may not matter quite as much to you as making sure you get paid on time and you got a hot meal and and, and you're getting you know you're getting the, the the weapons and arms that you need at, right. at the fr at the front. So it it all matters. It's it's all uh, important. But look, I mean, uh, you know, yes, Trump gave them the uh, the largest budget ever. I think seven fifteen right, $715 mm -hmm. billion, dollars, but then he just mm -hmm. said, I want a 10% cut next year of all departments. So it's likely, possible, that the Pentagon budget will go back down to what it was yeah. uh, before they got the big increase. The other thing to remember about the budget increase, Essie, is it takes time. It's like moving an aircraft carrier. It takes time to move that ship around. And so while the, inflection, uh, the influx of this cash is important and the resources will be used well to arm the, the military for better competence uh, in the field and in the fleet, it's going to take a while for that to take effect. So a budget cut uh -huh. next year could erase uh, whatever small progress they've been able to make so far. Hmm. Uh, let's talk about vets, too, because Trump says he's done more for the vets than any president has done in decades. Uh, he did sign a funding bill for the VA in September that was, again, the largest ever for Veterans Affairs, um, $200 billion. And this week, The Washington Post reported that the VA is still experiencing GI Bill payment delays, inordinately long wait times to see doctors. So what kind of grade should vets give Trump right now? I think, look, I think he, I think credit where it's due. He has, he has funded the VA uh, more than, uh, than it's ever been before. Yeah. Um, he has improved transparency on wait list times. He has signed the Accountability Act into place, which I was very, very supportive of, which uh, makes yeah. it easier for VA managers to hire and fire, you know, good right. skilled talent there. So that's all good. But let's keep it in perspective. The budget increase is only about 12 billion from, from last year's budget and half of that increase was mandatory spending he had no control over that to remind in the last two years of obama's administration the va budget was increased by about 20 billion dollars so you mm. have to keep this in perspective um, many of the programs that he has uh, that he's continued are ones that you know president obama started uh, so it's a mixed picture uh, i don't i do think it's unfair though uh, to hit trump too hard uh, on the veterans and va issue he acts i do believe he really does care about veterans and the veterans community mm. and he really wants to make it better i i, I believe that you know that, that he's certainly trying to pursue uh, more progress for for the va but it's a tough institution to turn around as previous presidents have yeah. have learned the hard way it's going to take a lot of time and a lot more attention
Good advice to keep this all in perspective, and it's exactly why I wanted to have you on to discuss all of these moving parts, because it's not just a one-note story. There's a lot going on here, and That's right. it's important to keep it all in its place. Admiral Kirby, I really appreciate it. Thanks. You bet. Thank you. Okay, up next, are Democrats any closer to coming up with a strategy to topple Trump in 2020? And still ahead, the latest on Nancy Pelosi's House power struggle. Did you know that the man running Trump's comms shop is getting paid millions by his former employer, presumably while getting paid by the White House, a.k.a. you, taxpayers? You may not have known that because it was part of the president's Black Friday news dump. But when former Fox News co-president Bill Shine entered the Trump administration as deputy chief of staff for communications in July, he had to file a financial disclosure form. After getting a 68-day extension, he finally submitted it on October 9th. And yesterday, the document was made public. It reveals Shine got an $8.4 million severance payout from Fox's parent company and that he's set to receive another $7 million from 21st Century Fox through 2019. Again, all while he's on the White House payroll. As if that's not startling enough, let's remember that Shine got his golden parachute after being forced out at Fox when he was accused of covering up rampant sexual harassment by Roger Ailes. Layers, folks, lots of layers. Okay, we'll be back in two minutes. In the Red Filed Night, sure, we just had an election and the next one is two years away, but rest assured the 2020 handicapping has already begun on both sides of the aisle. President Trump's own path to re-election, if he seeks it, will be a little tougher than the last time when he had the advantage of a crowded Republican field, higher polling numbers, a suburban constituency that is no longer with him, and an opponent who, well, managed to lose to Donald Trump. But with a House Democratic caucus that's more diverse than ever, there's a growing internal debate in the party over who is best positioned to take him on. Should Democrats double down on their far-left progressive policies? Should they find a moderate who can speak to the middle of the country? Should it be a woman or a person of color to counter Trump's often misogynist and nationalist rhetoric? Or should it be a liberal version of Trump, a foul-mouthed, tough-talking blowhard who can meet him at his own game? Well, one person who has an opinion on the matter, former President Obama, here's what he had to say this week in an interview with CNN's David Axelrod. With respect to going forward, the idea that there's some demographic or um, uh, profile of a particular candidate that is the optimal one or the ideal one, uh, that's just not how I've seen politics work. I, I, I think people respond to candidates who speak to the moment in some fashion. Here to discuss is the former executive director of the New York State Democratic Party, Democratic strategist Basil Smeichel. Basil, I want to start with what I think was a very smart framing of this uh, by Obama. Candidates who speak to the moment. Both sides have failed at this in recent years. Um, You may think that Hillary Clinton was qualified, but clearly the wrong person for the moment. I uh, hugely respect and admire Mitt Romney. I think he would make a great president. But nominating him a billionaire businessman on the heels of Occupy Wall Street, it was just not the right timing. 
So do you think that Democrats are in danger of once again anointing their nominee years before the moment presents, uh, you know, the real the real opportunity? Well, you know, look, I if we if we learn one thing out of uh, this midterm election, it's that you had all of these candidates running, and midterms are usually managerial, they just sort of run for the job, yeah. but you had all of these candidates around the country running with this vision of leadership and running very, these hyper-local campaigns. Yeah. So to speak to President Obama's point, yeah. it's going to be a while before we know of any singular candidate that can sort of... Uh, aggregate all of those different interests from across the country. That's going to take time. There is a danger if we try to sort of push someone in that yes. direction. That person actually has to emerge from I the mean, David Axelrod and I have talked about this actually mm -hmm. personally, and he says, you know, for once, can we just let the, the you process, know, 60-plus yeah. candidates right. who are going to run, right. can we just let them run? Can we let them campaign right. before the party decides and sort of foists a person uh, on the public? I, I'm not sure um, that they can avoid that again, but, but they should. Um, so there are two parallel conversations I'm hearing in Democratic circles. One is we need a Joe Biden, mm -hmm. someone who's fluent in Rust Belt ease, uh, you know, who can speak to um, people who feel like the party's left them behind. The other is someone who will run as an actual liberal, someone who's pro-immigration, pro-pot, pro-single-payer, all, all, all those things. Is it possible to find a combo? I don't know that that person really exists today. Um, look, and I, and I go back to your point, and I understand where you're coming from. I do think Hillary Clinton was a candidate of her time and of her moment. I do think she she was where she needed to be at that time. Um, I don't know if we were all ready for her. And, I, and, and that is a very important thing to mm -hmm. me, and that's why I say... Um, when you ask me a question about it, do we want someone who's pro-pot, pro-marijuana, mm. pro-this, pro-that, I, I don't know that the country has made up its mind yet. Mm. And, and, mm. That is, and again, that goes back to this issue of do we push a candidate ahead? I don't think that we should do that. If, but I would say this. In your graphic, first of all, take Avenatti off of that, please. Don't want to be talking about, do not want to be talking about that guy right now. Uh, but that Smart. said, uh, but somebody like Amy Kobukar, or um, uh, or others uh, like uh, former governor of Virginia. Why am I blanking on his name? Terry McAuliffe. Oh, uh -huh. um, there are those are conversations that have been yeah. taking place very recently, and you sure. hear Hickenlooper, Looper, the all yeah. these folks. Mm -hmm. So I do think that they're they're we're expanding the uh, the 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 scope here, which I think is a good thing because it shows that we have a base and that we have uh, a good bench. What about just quickly, Beto O'Rourke? No, if we're look, if we're going to talk about Beto O'Rourke, we should also be talking about Andrew Gillum and Stacey Abrams because they were very popular, did not win, but are the future of the party. So I don't, I don't want his name to just be there in isolation uh, from the others. Having said that, maybe a good number two, maybe not top of the ticket. All right, Basil Michael, thank you so much for that. Uh, <laughs> stay right there because we're going to talk about Nancy Pelosi's ongoing battle to reclaim the speaker's gavel. All right, Democrats have more immediate concerns than 2020. In a letter to Democratic caucus members and members-elect sent late last night, House Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi is trying to quiet a raucous caucus that's been squabbling over who should become the next Speaker of the House. She writes in part, I thank so many of you for the strong support you have given me for Speaker. Respectful of the views of all members, I request that we all support the nominee of our caucus for Speaker on the floor of the House our diversity is our strength and our unity is our power. 
Now, that's a message to Democratic Congresswoman Kathleen Rice, presumably, who has said Democrats who vote for Pelosi are risking their own seats in two years. It's a message to Congresswoman Marsha Fudge, who considered taking Pelosi on for speaker and has since bowed out. It was a message to at least 16 Democrats who signed on to a letter demanding new leadership. Now, others, it seems, have received that message. Incoming freshman from Kansas, Sharice Davids, who flipped her seat from red to blue, just announced this afternoon she'll be backing Pelosi. Upstart freshman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez did the same earlier this week. Both women citing coming reforms and, frankly, the lack of challengers in the field. So how's Pelosi looking? Well, let's bring back Basil Smichel and bring in senior political correspondent for The Washington Examiner, CNN political analyst David Drucker. Um, David, I start with you. According to new polling, Democratic voters favor Pelosi uh, for speaker by a margin of two to one. Should House members care about that? Well, House members usually don't, and I don't actually think they should. And what we've seen over the years, and we've seen this on the Republican side where the grassroots always favored getting rid of whoever their speaker was, said it didn't really member because when you're a leader in Congress, it's a service business. You have to take care of your members legislatively and politically, and and Pelosi has done that. And one of the reasons uh, she's a probably, and I'd say very likely to be the next speaker, uh-huh. is one, she's done her job legislatively, she's done her job politically, but I will add, and you, you mentioned this, Essie, yeah. she doesn't have a challenger, and you can't beat <laughs> right. somebody with yeah. nobody, right. And, right. and the angst is real, I'd say the angst is real because she's been at the top for so long, 14 years, it's a long time to be at the top, Republican, Democrat, when you're a leader in Congress, mm. and so there's a lot of restlessness, but if Democrats want to take her on, they want somebody new, they're going to have to have somebody that does the work and nobody's done the work they're a bunch of complainers and they need to cut it out and do the work uh basil there have been some complaints that opposition to nancy pelosi from within the democratic party has been sexist or ageist um i think there's really not a lot there (laughs) since some of the opponents have been women themselves Mm -hmm. and some well into their 60s Isn't this just about elevating someone who maybe can better represent this new, diverse, fresh-faced Democratic House? Well, one of the reasons that people have used those terms sexist and ageist is because Chuck Schumer had the losses. She didn't have the losses Chuck Schumer had, and nobody's calling for his resignation. So there's that. Uh But um, listen... She gets pilloried so much because during the years that Obama was president, Democrats lost almost a thousand seats nationally. And that's in part because he didn't use the party to get elected. He kind of ran around it. Mm. So we lost our infrastructure. But the truth is, after Mm. that midterm, after this midterm election, Mm -hmm. I don't really see the argument for her to not be there. Uh She got she she brought did the job. She did the job. She flipped the house. And quite frankly, even the much maligned VCCC had a Uh record fundraising year and did extremely well with recruiting these great candidates that we've Yeah, but that's the question, David. Is is selecting a new speaker, is it sort of reward for a job well done, or is it forward-looking, the job that needs to be done? Well, well, look, in a perfect world, it's both. I mean, you reward leaders that have performed. You're also trying to think ahead and plan for the future and put the party in a position to be successful again, Mm -hmm. not just, gee, thanks for what you did for me yesterday. That's not what politics is about. But so to that, the debate that I'm hearing, at least according to 538 on the Hill, is really over whether they want an electoral speaker, someone who's going to help Democrats win elections, or a legislative speaker, someone who's going to get 
bills passed. Yeah, what, and, what are you hearing? And I, look, I understand where that story is coming from. But the thing is, Pelosi did the job electorally. They won just about 40 seats in the House, including a ton of tough districts. Yeah. So to make the case that she can't get it done electorally hmm. is off base. I think that what they need to think about is this. Hmm. Okay, they have a, a top leadership. They're all in their 70s. They've all been around a long time. Yeah. Fine. You know what? Stick around as long as people will elect you. But the party needs to harness a lot of the fresh energy and fresh blood. Yeah. But you know what? There's only so much that Pelosi is supposed to do. If and, and, and I just said this, but mm. I'll say it again. It's important. If they don't want her to be speaker, do the work and challenge her with a candidate. Well, and there's a good chance that there'll be a new speaker mm. in two years or four years if there's somebody that does that. To his point yeah. about, about re- sort of reward, if you're going to engage sort of this new Democratic coalition, maybe the way to do that is not necessarily through her, but through people under her, Steny Hoyer or Jim Clyburn. Now, I'm not advocating that they be taken out, but those are people that uh, some of these challengers are looking at and saying, we can't go after Nancy Pelosi, but maybe mm. these are the spots that we get to be mindful to sort of uh, do the hat tip to this new new coalition. Well, so uh, President Obama also with David Axelrod said something real interesting. He said, um, Nancy is not always the best on cable, a cable <laughs> show or with a quick soundbite or what have you, but her skill, tenacity, toughness, vision is remarkable. Her stamina, her ability to see around corners, um, really praising her tactical abilities. I get that. But, Basil, do you want, as the face of the Democratic Party, Nancy Pelosi, for the next two years, she's been a very effective foil for Republicans? Um, I don't have a problem with her leadership uh-huh. in the next couple of years. I really don't. Um, and, I, and maybe it is a lot of reward, because for the work that was done, both legislatively, holding the Democrats in line, and electorally, I, I don't really see an argument to replace it. Also, the Democratic yeah, nominee for president is going to be the face of the Democratic Party in Coming less up. than two years, yeah. and Pelosi will be Six doing her Which work of in the, the background. 60? <laughs> we'll have to Your narrow that down. as good as mine. All right. <laughs> David, Basil, I appreciate it. Thanks so much. Uh, next, a tragic story that could have major repercussions around the world. In the fight against Bashar al-Assad's murderous and oppressive regime in Syria, the cause just lost two of its greatest warriors. Raid Ferris, a prominent activist who ran one of the only independent radio stations in Syria's last opposition stronghold of Idlib, and his colleague Hamoud Junayed were shot and killed on Friday, according to their Radio Fresh news station. They were gunned down by unknown assailants in a targeted attack in the town of Kafranbol. Radio Fresh was critical of Assad and often opposition groups like HTS, also known as al-Qaeda in Syria. In a statement released today, the Syrian-American Council says Riot Ferris was a civil society leader who led numerous initiatives, including an independent community radio station, famous protest signs in anti-regime demonstrations, and training of media activists. Media activist Hamoud Junaid has worked to document the Syrian revolution and bring Syrian stories to the world. The Syrian-American Council calls on the international community to bring the perpetrators to justice, support active representatives in Idlib to dismantle its terrorist groups, and to accelerate a political transition, less Assad, to bring peace and democracy to Syria's people. Back in 2014, BuzzFeed ran a story about Fares with the headline, Riot Fares will keep working to make you care about Syria, even if it kills him, and it might. Let me turn your attention now to another horrific humanitarian crisis, this one in Myanmar. More than 720,000 Rohingya people, an ethnic Muslim minority, have been driven from their homeland to refugee camps near the Bangladesh border and as far as Indonesia and Malaysia. 
They've faced untold horrors, including rape, murder, and arson, by a government that has institutionalized their discrimination and persecution. At an emergency UN Security Council meeting in 2017, former U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations Nikki Haley said Myanmar authorities had carried out a brutal, sustained campaign to cleanse the country of an ethnic minority. And Bangladesh's foreign minister has condemned the violence in Myanmar as nothing short of a genocide. And that's bad enough, but increasingly the government has also been cracking down on journalists trying to tell this important story. That is taking its toll. CNN's Matt Rivers got rare permission to visit Myanmar, where he spoke to the wives of two imprisoned Reuters journalists. Tetar Angel is now three months old, but she's only met her father once so far, because her dad is Walon, one of two Reuters journalists from Myanmar sentenced to seven years in prison. I want my daughter to know how her father loves her, she says. Walon and Joe Su'u, held since December, were convicted of possessing state secrets in a trial widely regarded as a sham. They have no evidence. I mean, if you actually read the judgment, you'll see what a farce the whole trial was. And they had no intention to harm the state. They were not spies. They are acting as journalists. Activists say they were targeted for investigating illegal killings in Rakhine State, implicating the military. It's an area where the UN says the Burmese army and others committed genocide against the Rohingya people, a Muslim ethnic minority. Seven members were later convicted and sentenced to 10 years. CNN visited the village of Indin, which the two journalists reported on. Now only the remains of the Rohingya side of town are left. All the houses burned down. But innocent or not, Walon sits in prison and his wife, Pani Mon, sits at home. I feel like this is the moment I'm struggling. Pani Mon is stoic. She says she's proud of his defiance and his calls for press freedom. But her daughter's been sick lately and talking about the hospital trip, she cracks. Others are with their husbands, but for me, I'm alone. She didn't tell her husband Angel was sick. Putting up the charade can be exhausting, something Chitsu Win would know. Her husband, Joe Su'u, is the other journalist in prison. I really want to tell him about my feelings, but I can't, she says. I just try to smile all the time. It's just her and her daughter now. She's three, loves mango. Her dad used to cut it up for her. When she saw him in court during the trial, she'd tinker with his handcuffs. She used to use her fingers as a key to try and unlock the handcuffs. Myanmar's civilian leader, Aung San Suu Kyi, has defended the pair's conviction. The UN and rights groups have called for their release. Both have lodged an appeal while their families keep hope and focus on what's good. Motin Waizan is a happy kid. She gave me some toy food. And baby Angel, Walon's daughter, is a joy, even if she doesn't sleep enough. Her mom hopes that one day soon, after a nap like this one, her dad will be there when she wakes up. Matt Rivers, CNN, Yangon, Myanmar. A heart-wrenching, very frustrating story, one that frankly doesn't get enough attention, and I'm grateful to Matt Rivers for bringing us that report. There are plenty of global challenges like this impacting America. And for expert analysis on them, be sure to subscribe to my Weekend Warriors podcast. It's available on Apple, Stitcher, and other podcast apps. I talk to experts about foreign affairs every week. 
All right, that's it for us tonight. CNN Newsroom with Ana Cabrera is up next.